Welcome to the latest in our Startup Diaries podcast. I'm Jeff Skinner, Director of the School's Institute of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. As part of my role here, I talk to dozens of students with the most incredible ideas and aspirations to found and run businesses of their own. And they have stories to tell about their experiences. And the purpose of this podcast series is to share their experiences and insights with everybody else. Today, I'm happy to have Juan Andrade, founder and CEO of ReBank. He and I met a few weeks ago to catch up on his journey and and after he left London Business School last year. And as we spoke, I realised that his experiences, especially around fundraising, really deserve to be shared more widely. So, Juan, welcome. Why don't you kick off just by telling us what ReBank does and and why businesses love it? Sure. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, first of all. Right now, we're focusing on building the best banking experience for high growth companies. So we learned two things in the last couple of years. The first is that the interfaces that companies use for banking are just completely outdated and they slow companies down. The second is that sending money by today's standards is just way too complicated and expensive. Now, despite these problems, uh, businesses don't want to switch banks. So actually, we work around those constraints. So ReBank actually works in tandem with your banks. You connect your existing banks to ReBank, And in a couple of minutes, you have a brand new view uh, of all of your banking, which allows you to do two things. It allows you to speed through your banking workflow much more quickly than before. And it also optimizes the way you send money so that you can save on that as well. Lovely. Now, the entrepreneurial story begins well before your MBA. In fact, it it starts a bit when you were a kid. Yeah, I think I didn't really understand entrepreneurship really but I I definitely remember thinking about inventions and inventing and I remember I used to draw you know these inventions to just problems that I would face on a day-to-day basis as a child and I would leave them on my teacher's desks or or for my parents but I I would never put my name on it I I, I was sort of embarrassed that maybe it was a dumb idea or you know it it wasn't sort of worthy of any attention but yeah I, I do remember enjoying that sort of deciding what the best solution to a problem is yeah yeah and the step to entrepreneurship is actually doing something about it and not remaining too philosophical but we'll come to that yeah because for, fast forward a few years and you know post degree you found yourself working at a couple of fintech businesses but really not quite satisfied yeah well actually i so, <laughs> i don't have an undergrad i actually dropped out to play poker instead and I think that was almost like a foreshadowing of, of, you know, what I was going to do later on in life. I started working in insurance and I moved to London and started working for a payment startup. Yeah. And I think there is when I started learning about payments and how much I enjoyed it. I realized that the intersection between financial services and technology and payments is really sort of easy to grasp and, and sort of measure. And obviously that became fintech sort of around the same time. And it became an obsession almost. And I say that because I, any chance I had, I would read about it, uh, read white papers, buy books about it, not for any particular reason, almost like just just for the sake of it. Well, curiosity driven and intrigue driven is often what what forces you into a new area. I mean, first of all, I say, you know, people think you need an undergraduate degree to get onto the MBA program. I've always held that's not true. And I think you're one of the first people I've actually ever spoken to where that's the case. You, you don't 
as long as you've excelled in in a particular area and show that intrigue, then uh, then then you can come to LBS. Is one of the wonderful things about the place. Yeah. But but enrol on the Ember you did. Yeah. Why did you do that? I mean, there is a paradox here because I remember you telling me that, you know, looking back on it, you definitely don't need one to start your own business, and yet there must have been something that was some sort of body of knowledge, something that you thought was was missing that that an MBA would actually heal. Yep. I knew that uh, my sort of financial understanding of a business wasn't where I thought it should be. And I I think deep down, it was just about confidence. It was about gaining the confidence to do something, you know, on your own. So I thought about, you know, what, what are the, how can I fill this plug, this knowledge gap in? And you know, I went through all the options and, yeah, I sort of stumbled upon MBA and then I stumbled upon London Business School. And I le- the more I learned about it, the more excited I got about the prospect. Because it's not just about learning about subjects. You do get a chance to reflect on what you've done and, and think about the future. And, and it's always easier when someone is sort of prompting you to, to think about that than doing it on your own. So, yeah. I think it really helped, above all, for my own confidence in doing something. Okay, so we welcomed you with with open arms, and then you came here. So, what was it? I mean, presumably you don't regret the experience. Mm, no, oh, good, God, good. No. He's, he's yeah, no, definitely not. That's good. So, what is it that you actually got out of it? I mean, there's, there's the people, of course, and you know the, the ability to mix with so many people with so many different backgrounds, mm. and, and then I guess. Uh, after that comes the comes the courses and the opportunities you get to try new things. I managed to learn and experience more in the 18, 24 months than I'd probably done in the previous three years because I had you have that sort of structure to your week, to your day that you don't have you know, outside of, of a learning experience of a, a course. And you know, this is the other thing. I was sort of up at, late at night, I'd just watch MIT videos on computer science that they would started putting up online. And, and I sort of realized this isn't structured. This isn't helping me to go towards a specific goal. So, yeah, the structure was really one of the things that allows you to achieve so much, even though you, you have a full-time job as a, with an Ember. But, you know, I learned from others. I learned from other people's. With the Ember, you, you know, I was one of the youngest, so people there were sort of, mid 30s maybe mid 40s so i could very quickly just chat to them about investment banking what it's like after 10 years or or what consulting is like at one of the top firms in the world and so on and i guess i learned through them how i would fit into certain roles and and the more i talked to these guys and girls i just realized that building something creating something was definitely sort of what I wanted to do. Okay, so that reaffirmed that. And there were courses, of course, we met in Entrepreneurship Summer School. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying also that if you go into a degree like this with, with a direction, with a purpose, you know, I need this body of knowledge for a particular thing, it's a very different experience to many in your class who were not quite, say, doing it out of general interest, but but didn't quite know what they were going to use the new toolkit for. Yeah. Some of my colleagues, my peers, sort of did it to try and find out what to do but I think the the course really at the end of it you have more questions and answers about what you should be doing so um having a goal in mind it was purely accidental really or, or sort of inconsequential but I knew I wanted to start a company for a long long time the company that I 
ended up starting with Simon was obviously completely different to what I thought it was going to be. But yeah, I went into the masters saying this, I'm going to start this company. I need these to fill these gaps in my in my understanding. And that meant every single every single class, every single group activity, I could either ask my study group, like, hey, can we do this on Rebank? Mm-hmm. Or I could um, ask the professor questions like, oh, what about in this specific field, in this specific example, right? I could get super granular with the information I wanted to learn. Mm. So, yeah. And which courses did you in particular just did yeah. you find the most useful? Here? I Okay, so ESS, um, obviously. It's entrepreneurship summer school. Yeah, course. so I, you know, not just because you're in the room, but uh, <laughs> it it everyone knows you have to get out of the room and talk to customers. But that's really, really difficult early on because you're kind of protective of your idea and, and you're not sure how to really turn it into an, from an idea into a plan. So and one of the biggest things that Entrepreneurship Summer School helped with was just you telling us, like, get out there. We don't want to see you for a couple of weeks. But um, New Technology Ventures with Michael Davis was incredible for understanding how technology sort of evolves at a macro scale and then how you can use that understanding to to think about your idea or your startup but then there are others <laughs> you know i mentioned this how financing the entrepreneurial business i thought well i'll take that you know 10 lesson course and you know that's all i need to learn about funding i will be ready but that definitely i mean i learned a lot there but it definitely isn't the case you you the real life experience you need is also super valuable so in the summer school was in 2017, and, and it was after that, still working full-time, of course, mm. uh, that, that it began to get serious. And, yeah. you know, you, you faced this fork in the road, yeah. uh, quit the day job and focus on rebank. Yeah. And, and even there, you asked classmates about what, what you should do. Yeah. I was always, you know, there were a few classmates in particular that were always supportive, um, helping me think about different areas. And with their, all their support, they also, when I said that, you know, I'm going to leave my job and I'm just going to focus on rebank, they none of them were particularly pleased or, or encouraging about that. But, you know, they showed support in their own way, um, <laughs> uh, just around helping me sort of think about all the things you have to think about. So, yeah, that that decision, you know, it didn't feel like a decision. And it sounds slightly cliche, but I think any any entrepreneur or any person that thinks about businesses will will run through different ideas on almost on a daily or weekly basis. And I'd done that for years. With Rebank, it was the first time that I was like, okay, wow, this like I've done my little acid test of things that might go wrong with it. Everything's checked out. It's got further than any other idea. So it it's almost felt like a no brainer. But of course, there were a lot of risks that I definitely did not well, take into account. Yeah, well, not least because when you, you, you took that decision in autumn 17, quit anyway, and, and it felt the right thing to do. But at that point, you had an idea. It was You're onto the sort of uh, plan C or D with the idea. And you had time and uh, you had some energy, but no money. Mm. Uh, the, the next step, I mean, what, what happens once you've, decided to take that decision what changes the you, there is a burst of energy and excitement i think in setting out you know carving out your own path at the be, at the beginning and i spent a lot of time 
trying to learn about, you know, what the hell do I have to do? And I think this is one thing that I now looking back consider a very important thing for, you know, anyone starting off, you really think about the kind of media consumer you are and, you know, find sources of, of information, of content that really uh, encourage you to, you know, to learn about specific things that will help your goal or to help you think in a specific way because taking the you know, entrepreneurial path is not a common path. When I told my friends, they all said, oh, so you're going to go on Dragon's Den. And, and that's just not what entrepreneurship is about. So yeah, I think I was constantly trying things, failing, learning, and just trying, failing, learning. And, and this was all alone. I mean, you hadn't yeah. found the co-founder yet, yet, yet that was one of the first things you set about doing. Yeah, you know, Simon and I started building rebank in january 2018 and i think ess was mid-july mm -hmm. so for those six months or six or seven months i was just looking back through every single person that i used to work with and all my friends and i realized i actually don't know that many developers so i had to start talking to anyone that i could and asking them what should a developer do you know how can this become a reality and really, really starting from the bottom. And the more people I met, the more I was able to build a picture in my head of, of what a a good co-founder may look like and, and you know, what a bad co-founder may look like for my situation. And, and that was really, really useful. I would always ask after meeting someone, you know, can you tell me two or three people that I, you know, could speak to about this, about, you know, so I, I think I always posed it as, as learning. I want to learn about this area or that area, and um, and yeah, that that helped a lot. And, and but you found him. I mean, yeah. you found him through a, a process of of using networks, but also immersing yourself in networks. Yeah, I really I remember reaching a point where it just wasn't going anywhere, and I felt like I'd done everything that I could, um, and I felt the only thing I could do now was just double down on it, just spend more time on it, and and yeah, that that helped a lot. So. It, obviously, for Simon, he was also in the right frame of mind to look for something. And the thing with you know, when you're finding a, a technical co-founder you know, for non-technical people, the people you speak to will have lots of offers on the table, mm -hmm. and you really have to treat them with the sort of the same level of respect or, or, or you know attention that you would give an investor, that you would give a customer. And I, I did that, and I really took the time to sort of show, hey, you know, I'm not just some some guy with a like an idea. These are the things that I've done. I'm super serious about this. And I think that helped. Yeah, because, yeah, Simon had a lot of offers that he could take. But ultimately, yeah, we ended up working together. Yeah, so that was Jan 18. Yeah. And then another unexpected twist at the last minute, you apply for an accelerator and um, decamp. Yeah, we applied to YC. And That's Y Combinator. Yeah, to Y Combinator. And not really, well, I think where that came from is just sort of realizing no one cares about your startup. And what I mean by that is very early on, you need to find gravitational forces that will take you from where you are to where you want to be with the next round. So for us, it was a, um, a regulatory sandbox that we took part in. And then you know, a few sort of uh, events and so on. You do everything you can as a as an entrepreneur. But then, yeah, we thought, okay, well, we need money. We, we're not going to just 
because we were bootstrapping for the whole first year. And yeah, we, we applied to YC, we applied to a few others, and we were pretty shocked when we were invited over. And it was a pretty... <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, we it's funny because um, the one of the partners that takes care of fintech, Aaron, he did a Skype interview beforehand, and uh, he yawned pretty much the whole way through. Uh, it was like 10 minutes, a bunch of questions, and then that's it. And yeah, he yawned. As I started talking, he'd start yawning. And, and I just thought, oh, God, I've, you know, I've messed it up now. In the end, we got the invite and uh, we actually didn't get in the first time. And we applied again. And, you know, the same thing happened. We The interview was with uh, Tim Brady and some others. So Tim was employee number one of Yahoo. So you get to meet these incredible sort of people. And and yeah, we got the yes, and it was a pretty surreal moment. Everything leading up to that felt the way a normal early stage startup does, which is, uh, yeah, like a lot of challenges, a lot of overcoming problems, and and. Learning. But then over there, but 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 essentially, people have this great glamorous view of what entering Y Combinator is. But but for you, it was uh, an apartment somewhere in Silicon Valley, holed up, building product and talking to users. Yeah, we rented out a house. We got one of. Uh, Simon's friends, Luke, who was working at Uber at the time, he joined us. And yeah, it was just us three in the house. And it took a while for us to adjust to the sort of Silicon Valley way of thinking about startups, which was actually, yeah, it was tough. But the great thing, the great excuse there is that you have a, a reason to say to your family and loved ones that you want to focus on this thing you know, for, for three months. You may not be around too much, but you know, you'll be back. And the YC partners sort of mentioned that because they know that a lot of early stage companies need that initial sort of burst of energy and, and effort to get off the ground. And yeah, we definitely agree seeing what it was like for other founders in the, in the mm. program. So there was a lot of uh, build uh, and a lot of testing. Mm-hmm. And then back here in April... 2018 now with evidence of user need uh, a product a co-founder relationship still intact but still no money but but although there's no money almost from the end of summer school you had been talking to investors i mean perhaps as asking them for advice rather than money but it, but it's really that that part of the that the fundraising part that that intrigued me the most because it went on for so long and, yeah. and how many investors did you speak to in the end? I know what it seemed like, but it, at what there was one week where it was back-to-back investor calls. I mean, did you find it easy to get that time with investors? Yeah, uh, it meetings? definitely it definitely wasn't before getting into an accelerator, right. and then that that does change it somewhat. And uh, obviously, it's up to you to take advantage of that. But you know, end to end, I easily spoke to. 100 investors at different stages of, of, you know, the company. And again, one thing I would say, looking back, you know, for something I wish I had known, is that those conversations you have with investors early on, where you just have an idea, maybe an MVP, really, the purpose of that is very different to when you're ready to raise. So I thought I, you know, I was going to raise right out of ESS, someone would give me money, and it'd be all sort of gravy. That is not the case. And I think there are stories like that. But what isn't written about so much is that there are some very serious network effects at play when you do get a young founder sort of raising, you know, six million or or, or more in the US. 
So yeah, the typical journey is when you first start talking to investors, it's really, it should be as much about learning about what they have to think about and worry about as possible. Then later on with the right traction, you can sort of change the dynamics of the conversation where you can say like, we're basically ready to take off. So you can join us on this journey or not. And yeah, that's something I, I always talk to, you know, new founders about as well but there is something about understanding the behavior and the mindset of, of the investor mm. which which I, I say you picked up i mean th- there, there are lots of false positives along the way people can be super enthusiastic about it but at the same time the, the money doesn't come there seems to be a, another set of criteria that they use yeah and this is interesting for me because just people generally are interesting you know i like to sort of learn about the dynamics of of how sort of people think and people talk in different situations and so i had no mental model for what a conversation between someone with you know millions in their in their sort of uh, responsibility and and a founder that wanted some money to build something potentially huge i didn't understand that that dynamic so i went into it almost academically because of what i had learned i figured you know, if if I could apply the five forces to rebank well, if I could justify the sort of the business case level of how things work and get that across succinctly, then yeah, you know, investors would sort of just see that and and just go ahead with that. But there is a different side to um, to talking to investors, and I think I, I've built an appreciation for that in in that it is a it is a team sport on their side where there is a community sort of feeling more so than with founders. And I think the easiest way I can describe this is that a typical investor will see hundreds of founders and decks every month and thousands every year, and they will only really say yes to maybe a dozen companies. That builds a very different worldview to a founder who thinks about one thing and one thing only every single sort of waking moment of their life so i think as i learned more about what investors are really looking for it helped me build the narrative right but they were asking you questions that you hadn't expected i mean there's a certain degree of due diligence there what is it that you now think they're looking for clearly not something that's justified by five forces well i mean never believe that <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but what what is it that gives i mean do, do you get a sense it's it's in the, their gut as well there's something that they have to feel comfortable about this and that's just that building of comfort is 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 a community effect because they all you, you discovered that they were all talking to each other and also just it, it takes time to settle and become comfortable and feel right i mean what what what's going on if it isn't a purely cerebral, yeah, that sounds rational. Here's the money type decision. Yeah. You know, like any decision, there there is some irrationality or some sort of fallacies at play. For me personally, I love understanding that side of it. I love understanding the the emotional side. So you cannot usually convince an investor with just pure logic. It just I didn't. No one makes decisions like that, really. Not even in B two B. If you're a B two B founder, it isn't about the sort of understanding features and then comparing to competitors and so on. So, if that is true, then you have to think about. All right. Well, what are the triggers here that are going to help me get a sort of message across to to the investor that you know that we're in this for the long haul, that we we feel we're extremely confident about what's going on, and that the feedback we're getting from customers is really again like validating what we're doing and yeah i think it's there's a lot to sort of unpack there but ultimately 
I think actually the investor can do something in the way they ask the questions. So I realized that there were broadly two types of questions I was being asked. The first was purely sort of kind of assessing company, right? What is, you know, growth, sort of metrics driven, mm -hmm. transactional driven stuff. And then other investors were asking me about me, about the founding story, uh, about the future. So making me think about things that I hadn't thought about. And I found those com conversations far more rewarding. And I'm sure the investor learned a lot more uh, about the potential of the company by understanding sort of not just the base metrics, but what is this vision that this founder has in their head? Because most founders, myself included, whilst we have a sort of deep understanding of the problem and, and how we want to uh, change it, getting that narrative out of them is not something that is natural to all of them. So yeah. So it really is people, 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 product. I, For me it is, yeah, definitely. Mm. But w when it finally happened, I mean, yeah, we can fast forward a little bit because, you know, funding is now happened. When it happened, it happened quite quickly. And, and there's some theories to that as well. I mean, in the end, you had more expressions of interest than you actually needed. But yeah. you also felt there was, it was, well, he wants to, so I want to. And there was, it It didn't come down to an individual saying, I shall. It almost came down to a community of people saying, this is good. Yeah. Not quite let us do it, but, oh, you're doing it, are you? Okay, well, that gives me the extra little crumb of confidence that I need for me to want it as well. You know, almost a fear of missing out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There is, uh, there's so many things here uh, I think we could we could sort of talk about, but one of them is that where, it's funny actually because, a founder will overcorrect to to fit what a, a what they think an investor sort of is asking for, and you know if investors are in an environment where you know every tenth VC that they meet has had a big exit, they will think very differently to a, an investor that maybe is in well, frankly, Europe, right? So in, the way investors think in the US is so different to Europe because. Yeah, because over there, just every other person knows someone that's exited or knows someone that's had a big sort of success with a company or with a fund. Um, so, yeah, it does change the conversation. But ultimately, it is all about the community of VC. And I think founders ought to do everything they can to really understand what's happening on the other side of the table. And you've you got several investors. I mean, there's two VCs and then uh, some angels in there. So did the syndicate form around you or did you put that syndicate together? Uh, it sort of, it you know, it fell into place. And we always wanted a smaller sort of group of you know investors. Some some people go for just pure numbers where they have you know thirty plus investors. But yeah, we wanted to be quite deliberate with who we wanted to work with. So yeah, that took a little bit of time. But but yeah, no, we're really happy now with the long term view of our investors. I mean, did did the table the tables turn? That's the wrong way of putting it because it makes it sound like a power thing. But in the end. Did you get yourself into a position where you you were picking them rather than vice versa? Yeah, there was. You know, and if I focus on like what are the factors at play here, the problem that you focus on rarely changes, or it shouldn't change. You know, and we the problem that we want to address hasn't changed. The pains we understand, especially me, I've seen them firsthand. The the solution, the product that you sort of put in place to fix that. That goes through iterations in your head when you describe it and also, you know, as the product evolves. The narrative that you share with the world, with investors, 
with employees, customers, that changes a lot more than the other two. And I think I'd reached a point where the story I was telling around what we were trying to achieve was starting to make sense, was starting to fit a model that investors had in their head. And, you know, I think that's maybe quite a uh, rigid way of, of looking at it. But but frankly, I think we all have an idea in our head of what we're looking for as an investor or as a founder. So, um, so yeah, that's that's how I, we reached the situation where, yeah, we, we did have multiple offers and we, we had to decide. And we did our own due diligence, of course. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, mutual due diligence. <laughs> so, I mean, th- this has all been announced now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just uh, very recently, we announced that we raised uh, 2.8 million. And we actually, it all happened back in mid-June. But we were waiting a little bit just before we could announce it, just to make Mm -hmm. sure everything had settled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's marvellous. Fantastic story. Yeah. So, um, I mean, just to close, are there any key words of advice that you'd give your younger self two years ago? Those who are about to start on the same journey as, as you're a third of the way through? Well, perhaps these aren't standard bits of advice, but uh, the first I would say is really think about the media consumer you are. So the articles you read, the books, the videos you watch, it has a far bigger influence on how you think than than I think most people realize. And the second thing is to, especially in the early days, frame everything around learning. Don't go into any conversation thinking that you know what's going to happen or how it's going to go. It'll definitely open you up to um, absorb new ways of thinking. I mean, both of these two things are really helping you to define the DNA of the business. Yeah. And, and which is helping you to, to know what to stay true to yeah, through all the conversations and, and decisions that you have to take in the future. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. That's marvellous. Yeah. And, and, you know, thanks to you for for coming back and a offering to do this but also you know there's clearly been such a lot of learning along the way and uh, so also offering uh, in in the very best traditions of lbs those who've done it uh, you know, offering help to those who are about to yeah which of I, course this this podcast is is just one one element of that process yeah absolutely i i'm always happy to speak to people that are considering starting in ideas. And I speak to a few from LBS and, and you know, from other uh, parts of, of London. And yeah, I love it. I love helping them avoid the mistake that I made. Yeah, that's all we ever do is to decrease the odds of failure or, or increase the odds of success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Juan, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. So thanks for listening to our Startup Diaries. I hope you agree with me that this really was a journey worth sharing. For more information about our activities, speaker series, awards, programmes, competitions, conferences, do check out uh, london.edu forward slash innovation. And if you have any questions, just email us at uh, innovation at london.edu. Thanks very much. 